0: Episode 5. Shots Fired What you're about to hear is an event that occurred during my time as a peacekeeper. Based on a true and factual account, some details were changed due to security and confidentiality of concerns, but not in a way to affect the veracity of the story. So in this, the fifth episode, Please enjoy what was a dangerous and eye-opening experience. Life was cheap, half a bag of rice cheap, when you live in a small, war-ravaged and poverty-stricken country. Unless you've lived it and lived in it, you really cannot fully comprehend the difficulties of trying to live, let alone survive, in an environment that has suffered from a long and devastating war. A war that not only destroys everything physically within, But everything you own, right down to your own way of life, all in a place where trying to obtain half a bag of rice, could easily cost you your life. Food and water, the lifeblood and necessity of all humans, and when it's in small supply, you will do anything for it. For the best part of a decade, food in any form was scarce. The bulk of the water was contaminated and of very poor quality. They were suffering from arid lands and poor farming techniques. Malnutrition was rife, diseases debilitating, and illnesses very common. So when other parts of the world eventually became aware of the situation and they chose to act, food donations began to slowly flow into the country. However, management, control, and distribution of all food donations was paramount, and this is where our problems started right at the beginning of that food chain. Rice was the first of the bulk food to arrive and it was literally considered as bags of gold. Due to the sheer number of bags that came, the only real method of transporting was to convey it in the back of large dump-like trucks. So 10 at a time, each of these trucks would be loaded with hundreds of bags of rice and placed into a convoy. Our job was to get that convoy to a secure warehouse where the rice could be safely stored before it was distributed. Now, I know this sounds easy enough, but it wasn't to be as there still weren't enough peacekeepers in the country. So yet again, we found ourselves spread thin. We had to make do with the resources at hand. So initially we started doing the rice runs with a UN vehicle at the front and one at the end of each convoy. The gangs quickly picked our weakness and would throw rocks or shoot enough darts to stop one of the trucks, which was typically positioned in the middle of the convoy, and they'd just strip it of its load. Even in some cases, if the line stretched out too long, they didn't even bother stripping it. They just stole the whole thing. So we had to quickly find another method, as we could ill afford to lose much rice. The next solution was to alter our transport time to coincide with more units being available. We reduced the number of trucks and the frequency of each run and we would use a vehicle at either end of the convoy and one somewhere typically in the middle and this worked for about a day the gangs and even some of the locals cleverly adapted to our change and they secreted themselves high in the trees so when a truck passed underneath they would drop unseen onto the bags of rice in the open tray at the rear then they'd sit there waiting until a convoy passed under a predetermined point and very quickly through bag after bag, out to an assembled crowd, which caused absolute mayhem. So to combat this, we placed an armed peacekeeper on top of the rice bags in each of the trucks, and we changed our route to avoid low-lying trees. And then after a few days of this, we managed to get the rice packed and stored into a secure warehouse centrally located within the city, or at least what they thought was a secure warehouse. So early on a Sunday morning, I was en route to UN headquarters when I got redirected. An urgent request was made for as many units as possible to attend to the rear of the rice warehouse where we'd recently stored the rice shipment. I was a little surprised to be called here, as the UN had assured us that this warehouse was secure, and I tended to agree. It had previously been used as a grain storage facility, and it was cavernous. Internally, it would have been two storeys high, and it was constructed of solid brick, all painted a light blue colour. The entire perimeter of the warehouse was also surrounded by an outer brick security wall, making it secure enough to house prisoners, or so I thought. The rear of the warehouse backed onto a wide and flat open field, and it was here that I was flagged down by a Bangladeshi peacekeeping unit. We would have been about 100 metres or so from the rear of the warehouse, and we could see hundreds of people swarming in the field near the outer perimeter wall. So intent were they on stealing the rice that none of them even seemed to notice that we were out there. The Bangladeshis told me a local gang had spent the night smashing a hole in the external brick wall surrounding the warehouse and had only just now breached the internal wall of the warehouse itself. I could see it had turned into a free-for-all, and these hundreds of people were taking turns stealing the rice from within. As I discussed options with the Bangladeshis, A rock sails out of nowhere and impacts the bottom edge of the windscreen of the Bangladeshi's car and puts a crack right through it. Okay, so they now knew we were here, which made me speed things up a bit. I wasn't prepared to sit here and wait for more damage, nor was I going to allow them more time to empty the warehouse. However, no matter how much pressure I put on the Bangladeshis, I couldn't persuade them to assist. They were concerned that the crowd might turn on them, and they refused to budge. They tried to convince me to wait for the armoured army unit that they'd requested to arrive, but we had no idea how long that could be. This frustrated the crap out of me, and I began to lose my temper with them, so it was happy days when Rick from my contingent arrived. I immediately briefed him of the situation, and even though we were both one-up, he didn't need any convincing. We quickly surveyed the wide-open field and could see the bulk of the crowd had assembled and funneled themselves towards the middle of the field in some sort of random queue. They desperately pushed and shoved one another to get to the hole in the wall. Rick and I threw around a few options and put together a plan. This time, Howitz and Vest went on and Rick drove off to the left of the field. I went to the right. Our plan was for each of us to drive at speed in as wide a berth as possible in the field to avoid what we knew would be the largest concentration of people in the middle. We needed to reach the breach in the security wall as quickly and unknowingly as possible to have the greatest effect. Now, we guessed it right, as most of them were focused on their position in the jagged queue in the middle, rather than being aware or concerned at what we were doing, and therefore very few rocks came our way. As I got closer to the wall, I could see the hole they'd made was quite small and it only allowed one person through at a time. However, such was the desperation for food, they had it down to a finely timed system. No sooner was someone out of the hole with their bag of rice, another one would bolt straight in. Driving up as close and as fast as I did, without running anyone down, I gave a long press on the horn and ripped the Prado sideways to a dramatic stop fairly close to the hole. Having purposely gained the attention of most, I jumped from the car and pulled the Glock from my holster. In a slow and deliberate theatrical display, I raised it above my head and pointed it skywards, I made the action of pulling the slide back to load it with a round. It had the desired effect, as the bulk of them turned and ran empty-handed, fearful of what it looked like I was planning to do next. I looked across at Rick, and I could see that he too had his Glock skyward in a similar fashion, and he'd achieved the same result on his side. However, after the bulk of them had scattered, there proved to be a steadfast, desperate few. I'd say about 20 or more had either not seen or heard us due to the commotion, or they had just plain decided to take a chance and stay at the hole. Now with even more desperation, some of them pushed at those ahead of them, or they just simply clubbed or knocked them to the ground. It was unexpected and not part of the plan. Brick fired around into the air, the sound reverberating effectively against the brick wall. Now this time it had absolute effect, and all of those that had initially chosen to remain now turned and ran, some even tripping over in their haste. So it was for the next 30 minutes that we stood by the gaping hole and grabbed each bag of rice as it was thrown through by someone before they climbed out. We made no arrests and we waited for the Bangladeshians to come and relieve us. Mind you, they only came over when the army eventually arrived, which was probably 20 or so minutes later. So we left it with them to organise the hole to be repaired and arranged for the army to conduct regular patrols of the outer perimeter until the rice could eventually be distributed. We didn't have to wait too long as two days later, the government made the order for the rice to be handed out. It was a comical scene to watch, as everyone who was no one from every conceivable UN department that pushed a pen at a desk wanted to be there for the photo opportunity. However, no one bothered to tell them that an angry crowd numbered in the thousands had formed at the metal gates to the warehouse. Their level of desperation and the show of aggression and just the ferocity of it scared off the bulk of the UN personnel and with it most of their photo opportunities. My contingent were tasked to assist and by the time we arrived early morning, it was already steaming hot. This wouldn't bode well for the rest of the day. We were forced to hold the gates closed while we attempted to calm the crowd and organise them into something that resembled structured lines. This was absolutely critical, as should they rush the warehouses we distributed, there simply wasn't enough of us to quell and control their numbers. So reorganising went on for more than an hour, and come mid-morning we were already struggling. It was difficult work attempting to convince them to move into some sort of orderly position while also trying to convince them there would be enough rice to go around and they wouldn't miss out. All of this in intense heat on an open and dusty streets. We designated one of us to keep a water supply up to each of us and our concerns soon turned to the locals waiting in line as they too struggled in the heat. Each of them had been given a ticket to obtain half a bag of rice but the ticket didn't allocate them a number in the queue a lot of them resorted to urinating on the spot for fear of leaving their position and thinking they may potentially miss out. We called for more water supplies and started to hand them out, indicating they would have to share them as there wasn't enough for everyone to go around. By the time the gates finally swung open and the lines began to slowly move, thousands of people had stretched along the main road and around a number of corners, all for just a half a bag of rice. The lines contained a mix of people, old, very old, young individuals and even families with their children running around each other playing innocent games in the heat. I took a lot of joy in watching some of these kids just enjoying the simple pleasure of playing hide and seek around the legs of others. One of their favourite games was to push old and used motorcycle tyres with sticks to see who could run the fastest and the furthest while doing it. It was just innocent, joyful and harmless fun. One of our pre-mission briefings, which was later reinforced in the UN lectures we received on our arrival, made us aware of a long-standing fear of the country's national army. Even though they were small in number, poorly trained and equipped, their army was still to be recognised and respected, by us anyway. They had a notorious reputation for lacking discipline and unpredictability. So when you combine that with the government allowing the UN to install the UN army of their own into their own country, it made for a toxic mix. It was common knowledge there were many rogues leading and within the National Army, and they had a steadfast refusal to accept the UN's presence, let alone assist. We'd been instructed that it was incumbent on us to show respect and restraint to them and to stay out of their way. I, for one, was on board because I knew they were armed with the lethal American M16 rifle, and that was not something to mess with. After a couple of hours of being in the line, everyone had calmed down and accepted their fate as the line continued to move, albeit slowly. It was now past the middle of the day and had become so seriously hot, I contemplated ditching the bulletproof vest. After chatting to the rest of the guys, they encouraged me to keep it on, and this was to prove to be sound advice. Word got passed down the line that a truck was slowly approaching and we needed to usher the crowd off the edges of the road and back into the lines to allow it to pass. As it neared me, I could see it was a National Army truck and for whatever reason, it was travelling slowly between the lines that were on each side of the road. It was a troop transporter as it sat high off the ground and had the typical camouflaged tarp to cover the troops in the rear. The reaction of the crowd was noticeable as the majority of them averted their eyes to the ground or looked in the opposite direction to the truck. Personally, I didn't care either way for its presence and I felt no need to divert my eyes. Besides, my main concern was for the safety of the locals. I continued to usher them gently from the road, moving them away from the path of the approaching truck. Eventually passing me, I watched it as it slowly continued on its way until it had travelled about another 30 metres further on when out of nowhere, and for no reason, a young boy ran from the side of the road and behind the truck. He stopped in the middle of the dirt road and faced the rear of it. I could see it was one of the boys who had been pushing a tyre with a stick, and then I watched as he wound up his right arm and launched a fairly large-sized rock directly at the back of the truck. I watched in absolute amazement as the rock flew under the tarp and inside the back of the truck, where three soldiers were looking out at us and at the rock. Holy fuck! In the rear of the truck, on a bench to the right, sat two soldiers, both with their M16s clearly on display. Watching out the rear, neither flinched as a rock came flying in. There was also a single soldier to the bench to the left, and I could see he was an officer, as he wore an officer's cap and not a beret. He leant back slightly, not that he needed to, as whether it was deliberate or not, that rock sailed perfectly between the three soldiers and banged into the canvas wall at the end. The truck slammed its brakes on and stopped quickly, but the boy was already gone. No sooner had that rock left his hand, he'd bolted, and he was running down the middle of the road, at surprising speed, away from the truck. I watched him zip past me before I turned back to the truck. Instead of continuing on its way, it had remained stationary and the two soldiers who had been seated on the right were now standing in the middle of the road, M-16s in hand. One of the two soldiers dropped to a knee and raised the sight of the lethal and accurate weapon to his eye. He took aim at the boy, who had cleverly resorted to running in a random zigzag pattern down the middle of the road. The second soldier had also raised his firearm and he used it in a covering and threatening sweeping motion across the crowds on both sides of the road, which forced most of them to drop to their knees or lie on their stomachs on the dirt. I turned back to the boy to see him running like nothing else, and with my attention focused on him, I didn't see it coming. But hear it, I did. Having never experienced the bark of rounds from an M16, particularly so close by, it was an incredible sound. In no way am I embarrassed to say I instinctively hit the ground and hard at that. I, like everyone else around me, ate some dirt and stones for lunch this day as I tried to sink myself as deep as possible into that hard and dusty ground. The sound of maybe half a dozen rapid-fire rounds echoed around the street and when it stopped, I turned my head to the soldiers. Which one had fired? Where did the rounds go? And who had they hit? I was thankful to see it was the soldier standing who had fired, as the muzzle of his M16 was pointed in the air, the smallest amount of smoke drifting from it. I swivelled my head the other way, just as Justin from my contingent grabbed the young boy from the middle of the road and pulled him in towards him. Since we'd arrived in mission, Justin had proved himself time and time again, and I had great respect for him and his capabilities. One of the more junior members of the group, he had shown competency beyond his years of experience and he was to later play an even bigger part in the mission. Having swept the young boy up, Justin pulled him into the front of his legs and hunkered protectively over him. In reflection, it was ironic, as by doing this, he presented the large, bold letters of the UN on the back of his vest, challengingly at the soldiers. The soldier who had been taking aim at the young boy rose from his knee and he walked towards Justin and the boy, his M16 pointed out in front of him. All of the members from my contingent quickly stood up, the vast bulk of the locals understandably choosing to stay down. And Nick Marks, the most senior of our contingent and effectively in charge that day, ran to the officer at the back of the truck, who had remained silent the entire time, still seated in the rear, and he called out to him. Control your soldier, Nick called out to the officer. Tell him to stop. And Nick even reverted to the local language, yelling, durun, durun, at the officer, a local word to put it down. But as Nick continued to uselessly plead with the officer to instruct his soldier to stop and stand down, the soldier in question continued down the middle of the road until he reached the back of Justin and the boy. Holding the boy in a tight grip, Justin reacted quickly when the soldier stepped to the right. Justin twisted around to his left to keep the boy protected in front of him and as far away as possible from the soldier. The soldier took another step in an attempt to gain access to the boy, but again Justin rotated to his left. Now, I wasn't aware at the time, but those of our contingent closest to Justin had unclipped their holsters and had their hands resting on the butt of their glocks. Then, unexpectedly, the soldier kicked out with his right leg in some form of roundhouse martial arts kick around the front of Justin and impacted Justin's arm that had been protecting the back of the boy. There was this tense pause until the soldier chose to walk off and return back to the truck, where both of them climbed back up into the rear. Having not said a word throughout the entire exchange, the officer in the rear just smirked as the truck slowly drove away. Justin released the young boy, and once again he took off at great speed without even bothering to glance back in Justin's direction. I watched him scamper past me and happily back to his family in the line. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.